Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our current study, The First Songs of Christmas. For a few short weeks, the songs of Christmas seem to unify the world. Whether they are pop songs, traditional carols, or sacred hymns, ultimately, the inspiration for Christmas songs is tied to the celebration of the birth of Christ. Join us this December as we look at the very first Christmas songs in history. To watch any of our previous messages online or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy! Well, good morning to everybody here in the house, everyone online. We're glad you're here. We're in this middle of this series called The First Songs of Christmas, and maybe you didn't know this, but they're actual lines of ancient Christian hymns in Scripture, and they were uh, written in those first years uh, after the resurrection of Jesus. Now, some of those uh, songs all appear in the Gospel of Luke, and we've been looking at those over the past few weeks, and uh, you may know those songs by their names if you've heard them in classical music. For instance, the first week we looked at Mary's song, which is which goes by the name the Magnificat, which is Hebrew. Excuse me, which is Latin for "My soul worships the Lord." And then we looked at the Benedictus, which was what Simeon said when he saw the Christ child presented in the temple. Today we're going to. Uh, look at another scripture from uh, Zechariah called the Benedictus. And then on Christmas Eve, we'll look at the Gloria in Excelsis Deo. But uh, to transition from that, let me ask you a question. Have you finished shopping for Christmas? Maybe uh, you have or maybe you haven't. Maybe you're having trouble finding that perfect gift for that hard-to-buy-for person. Christmas shoppers in 1975, I was alive then, Uh, a few of you probably were alive then, and you will remember this, the rest of you, you're going to have to take my word and and their word for it. At Christmas uh, 1975, shoppers were delighted when a new fad gift hit the market and they sold hundreds of thousands of this gift for several months. What was that gift? We're going to show you a picture of it. It was the pet rock. No lie. Somebody figured out that they could take a rock, put it in a box, write pet rock on it, and sell it. So let me just tell you a little bit of that story. In the mid-70s, there was an unknown editor whose name was Gary Dahl, and he was talking to his friends, and they were complaining about all the work they had to do to take care of their pets, feeding them, walking them, cleaning up after them. And so as a joke, Dahl just said that he didn't have any trouble with his pet because it was a rock. And that statement created an idea an idea that he couldn't let go of. And so he recruited two of his colleagues as investors and they visited a a building supply store and they bought a load of smooth, oval-shaped beach rocks for about a penny a piece. The pet rock hit the marketplace in time for Christmas, 1975, and in a matter of months, they sold a million and a half pet rocks 
It was a craze that would rival, some of you would remember the hula hoop craze. Um, and for a mere $3.95, you could buy your very own plain, ordinary pet rock. One that you probably could have found in your backyard. So for a few frenzied months in 1975, those millions of consumers heard about it, saw it, purchased it. They became owners of pet rocks. And uh, Newsweek, the magazine Newsweek, later uh, called this one of the most ridiculously successful marketing schemes ever. Now, when when, uh, Dahl died in 2015, the New York Times obituary claimed that the concept of a pet that required no actual work and no real commitment resonated with the self-indulgent culture of the 1970s, and that's why it became a cultural phenomenon. But what about, what about Dahl? Um, he became a millionaire practically overnight because of the, the pet rock boom, uh, but that success brought a ton of regret. The pet rock craze went the way of all fads. It died out, and it was replaced by the next fad. Of course, he didn't create that one. And after his sudden wealth, he went through three marriages, a lawsuit, and more failed attempts to match his previous pet rock success. And at one point, he's quoted as saying this. He says, sometimes I look back and wonder if my life wouldn't have been simpler if I hadn't done the pet rock. Jerry Dahl had a lot of regrets because one Christmas, he created and sold over a million pet rocks. Now today we're gonna look at the scriptures that will lead us to a passage that is called the Song of Zechariah, the the Benedictus. It's a song born out of regret. And also out of pardon. But let me tell you the story of Zechariah. You may be familiar with it. It's coming from the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And in that, let me share with you um, these scriptures. And I love the way Luke sets up the entire gospel. So let me just read the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Let me just say one thing about that passage. You go, wonder who Theophilus is. Well, scholars, commentators believe that Theophilus wasn't an actual person because Theophilus translates in the Greek to English as lover of God. It's a way to refer to followers of Jesus. So after Luke writes that, he dives right into a story, and he tells the story of the cousin of Jesus' mother. Her name is Elizabeth. And her husband is a priest who served at the temple in Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us these facts about them. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive 
and they were both very old. Now, though they lived in Nazareth, we learn from the story that in the week in question that we see in Scripture, Zacharias, Zacharias' division of priests that would serve in the temple was on duty that week. And Zechariah was chosen to be the one priest who got to enter not just the temple, but into the sanctuary of the, of the Lord. And he would go in there and he would burn incense as an act of worship for the people of Israel. And while he did that that day, there were lots of people worshiping and praying outside in the temple. When Zechariah was in the sanctuary of the temple, Luke tells us that the angel Gabriel appeared to him. And it says that Zechariah was startled and gripped with fear. And this is what Gabriel said. He said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. But then Zacharias speaks without thinking. You ever done that? You ever, you ever uh, said something and go, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. Well, I believe that's what Zechariah does because this is what he says. How can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man and my wife is also well along in years. Now, why do I say he, he, he spoke without thinking? Because he was a devout follower of Judaism. He knew the history of his people. He knew Abraham and Sarah. He knew their story that they were just as old as they were, and yet they too were not able to conceive until God sent an angel and spoke to them and told them even in their old age they would have a son. And they did. I can imagine how much he regretted questioning the angel of the Lord. I can imagine as soon as he said those words, he wished he could take them back, but it was too late. The damage had done. He had verbalized his doubt in God. And when the angel Gabriel heard Zachariah's lack of faith, he rebuked him. And this is what he said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born, for my words will be certainly fulfilled at the proper time. Then Gabriel left the sanctuary of the Lord, and Zechariah discovering he can no longer speak, came out of the sanctuary, overwhelmed. His voice is gone. And so using hand gestures, the scriptures tell us, he tried to tell the people what had happened. And people tried to understand him. They said, well, he must have seen a vision. But he remained and did his week of service at the temple. And when he had finished, he returned home. And yes, soon Elizabeth became pregnant. And unlike her husband... She expressed her faith, saying that God had done this for her and shown her his favor. 
Months later, Elizabeth gave birth to a son, and when she and Zechariah took the baby to be circumcised, everyone assumed the baby would be named after his father. And when they asked her and him what the name of the baby would be, because he couldn't speak, she said, his name is John. Everyone was shocked. This was not the way things were supposed to happen. Yes, you might name somebody not after the father, but somebody in the family, but there was no John in the family. And so they turned to Zechariah and said, what is the child's name? And he asked for a tablet and he scribbled on it and he wrote, his name is John. And the scriptures tell us that immediately his voice was released and he was able to speak and he began praising God. And it says that everybody who witnessed this was amazed. With no more regrets, Zachariah believed and followed the Lord's instructions and he and Elizabeth named their son John. And God restored, as I said, his ability to talk and talk he did. Luke writes that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he sang God's praises with a prophetic word for Zechariah having a son after he and Elizabeth had been unable to conceive for so many years was an amazing pardon for his regretful sin of not believing God's word that he would fulfill it. So with his voice restored, he sang a prophetic song that, that tells us some important truths about God. And I want us to look at those truths today. And I'm going to start with the first part of what is known as Zachariah's song. This is how he starts. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now, we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. So these words that, I, that Zechariah sang, the, these words, this, this prophecy tells us something as it told them also. And here's the first thing I want us to recognize. It tells us that God keeps his word. God keeps his word to Israel then and to us now. Now think this through. As a priest, Zechariah knew all about the promises of God. He knew that the Bible called these promises covenants, and there were four major covenants that God made to Israel. Maybe you've never studied this before, but there are four covenants that are really important in the Old Testament that we will look at here just briefly. The first covenant was the covenant that God made with Israel through Noah. That's right. This covenant was made after the great flood, the flood that devastated the earth and many lives were lost. And after that, God said, I will never send a catastrophic flood like this again. And the sign of that covenant is the rainbow. God made that covenant to Israel and to all who would believe in him and follow him. Now, Zechariah also knew about the covenants that God made with Israel through the couple I mentioned earlier, Abraham and Sarah. God promised to give them and their descendants the land that we know today is the country of Israel. 
And Zechariah knew about the covenant of circumcision that God made with Abraham and Sarah, in which God said that if they were faithful, he would bless them with many descendants. And after God tested Abraham's faith, he elaborated on this covenant, of which the sign was circumcision. He said, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars are in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Abraham and Sarah were blessed to be a blessing and each following spiritual generation of their followers who became followers of Jesus are blessed to be a blessing. So that's the Abrahamic covenant. Zechariah also knew about the Mosaic covenant, which was the covenant that God made through the leader of Israel named Moses. This covenant included the Ten Commandments, as well as what we know today as the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they're referred to as the law of the covenant. And finally, and maybe most importantly, Zechariah knew about the Davidic covenant. And that was the covenant that God made with Israel through King David. You see, King David wanted to build a temple for God in Jerusalem. He had already built a, a, a palace for himself, but he wanted to build a temple for God, and God said, no, you're, you're a soldier. I don't want you to do that. But God made a promise to David. He said, I will make your name great and raise up a descendant from your line, your family tree, whose throne and kingdom would last forever. Now we know the son who came after David was Solomon. Solomon built the temple, but he's not, this prophecy doesn't refer to Solomon. This prophecy, we understand, refers to the Messiah, to the one we know as Jesus. Now, ironically, Zechariah knew that God keeps his word, but when God promised him a son, he doubted. Promise after promise after promise after promise had been made, and yet Zechariah doubted. Sort of sounds like us sometimes, doesn't he? But after God pardoned Zechariah as he named his son John and God restored his voice, he understood what the angel Gabriel meant. When Gabriel said that this baby would prepare the people for the coming of the Lord, he was talking about the Messiah. He saw God was keeping his promise to send a mighty Savior from the royal line of David. God kept his word to Israel. He sent a Savior not just for Israel, but for the entire world. And unbeknownst to Zechariah, when he sang this prophetic song, he was foreshadowing a covenant from God that was yet to come. We know that covenant as the new covenant. That's the covenant that, that God brought through Jesus. That's the covenant that he fulfilled. So God keeps his word. He kept his word to Israel then, and he keeps his word to us today. So don't doubt. Trust that he keeps his word. But that's not the end of Zechariah's song. He continued, and he, he sang about God's 
faithfulness, and this is what he's saying. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. He has been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. These words from Zechariah, yes, they recall the covenant, but it, but it also talks about God pouring out his mercy, his mercy on the people of Israel and every successive spiritual generation. The story of God is a story of God pursuing humanity over the millennia. God's pursuit of sinful humans has been observed and recognized through the ages by, by all kinds of people, scientists, poets, authors, all kinds of people. In the 1800s, the English poet Francis Thompson wrote his most famous work. You, know, you may be familiar with it, you may not, but the, but the name of this poem is called The Hound of Heaven. And one person explains the meaning as this. As the hound chases after the hare, after the rabbit, never ceasing in its running, ever drawing near in the chase, with unhurrying and unperturbed pace, so does God follow the fleeing soul by his divine grace. And though in sin or in human love, away from God, it seeks to hide itself, divine grace follows after unwearily, following ever after until the soul finds its pressure, forcing it to turn to him, to God, alone in that never-ending pursuit. That's the story of the Bible, that from beginning to end, it illustrates God's merciful pursuit of humanity, willing to forgive us when we ignore him, when we prioritize other things before him and put them in higher positions in our lives. He is willing to be in a relationship with us, no matter what. He never gives up on us, always desiring for us to know him, to follow him, to obey him. In his song, Zechariah points out how God has been merciful to Israel, keeping his covenants, rescuing them from his enemies. And God has poured out his mercy on us. He has kept his covenants with us. He has kept those covenants that he made so long ago, continually pursuing us all the days of our lives. In the final lines of Zechariah's song, he brings these themes together in one idea that shows us that God restores our hope. Zechariah transitions to the restoration of hope in God. He addresses his son. I can imagine Zechariah holding the infant John in his arms. And he speaks of the hope that God brings, not just through his son, but through the Messiah. And this is what he says. And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us 
to the path of peace. Zacharias and Elizabeth's son is John. He's the cousin of Jesus. He is later in life known as John the Baptist, that wild-eyed prophet who said he came to prepare the way for the Lord, for the Messiah. And indeed, John does just as his father prophesied in this song. He would tell people how to find salvation through the forgiveness of their sins by believing in and following Jesus. Zechariah delivers these verses of restoration of Israel's hope, but it's greater than just Israel. It's not just a, a, a geographical location, Israel. It stands for those who believe in and follow God because it's not just one generation of people or one group of people. It's what God desired to offer to all people. And that prophecy is carried out through all scripture where it talks about how he came for the Jew and the Gentile. And in that era, there were only two kinds of people. They were Jew or non-Jew. And the non-Jews were Gentiles. So it's for all people. And then Zechariah closes with these verses of the restoration of Israel's and our hope. Let me read it again. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide us to the path of peace. Dr. Trent Butler explains in one of his commentaries what Zechariah meant by this, and he personalizes it for us today. He said, for too long, God's people have lived in the darkness of foreign governments, the darkness of economic oppression, the darkness of our own sins. We have experienced living death all these years. Now God is changing all of that. God will let his sun shine on us. His pathway for us will become clear. No longer will we have to plot war and subversion against the enemy nations. We will know his perfect peace. That's what Jesus brought. That's what he still brings. That's what he offers to us. This is the hope of Christmas. In his mercy, God has sent Jesus to dispel the darkness of this world and of death to guide us into the light of eternity and peace with God forever. And God has kept that word to us. God has been merciful to us and God has restored our hope. Now, when I began this message today, we started talking about Zachariah's regret about doubting God. Here's the reality of life. We all have regrets. There will be things that we wish we had said to people and things that we wish we had never said to people. There will be regrets about things that we wish we had never done and about things we wish we had done. I wish... I could save us from having those regrets. I wish I could save myself from having regrets, but, but I can't, and you can't. No one lives a regret-free life. But there's one thing that I can tell you that will keep you from being regretful forever. You see, when it comes to talking about eternal things, 
We like the vision of heaven where there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. We like it when Jesus says, come, you are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. We look at those verses in Scripture and they fill us with, fill us with nice, happy thoughts. But after that last verse that I read, just a few verses later, Jesus says something that we don't like to think about. And we probably don't talk about enough. In that verse, Jesus says, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, here's the reality. We all need to know this reality, particularly when it comes to eternity, so that we will not have any regrets The Bible and Jesus make it clear that there is a heaven and that there is a hell. And heaven is a place, yes, where there is no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. And God is there and there is light and love and happiness. And hell is a place where there is death and sorrow and crying and pain. And anyone who finds themselves in hell will live with that regret eternally. But I don't want you to have any regrets. I I want you to know that the hope that Zacharias sang about is real and it's available to you. It is the hope of heaven. So in his mercy, God doesn't make you earn a place in heaven because you can't. You, You can't do enough good deeds to outweigh the bad deeds. And, you know, the reality is this, is there's no grading of sin. All sin is looked at equally. And the Bible says very clearly we're all sinners. So you can't do enough to pay for the sins that you've done in order to get to heaven. That's not the way eternal life works. You receive eternal life by accepting the truth of who Jesus is, that he came to earth, that he's the son of God, that he died to pay the price for your sin and my sin and for everyone's sin. And if we accept that truth, meaning that we believe it, and if we believe it, it will look like we are following Jesus because that's what it means to believe in that truth, then we will understand that we have been freed and forgiven from the penalty of sins as we follow Jesus. It doesn't mean we'll be perfect people. It doesn't mean that we'll get it all right because we are still sinful people, but it means that we have the assurance of salvation, the assurance of eternal life, and that's the fulfillment of God's word to us over the millennia, that God's mercy to us and his hope for us is fulfilled in saving faith in Jesus. So I tell you that today, so you'll have no regrets, so that you will believe in him And invite him into your life. Now, obviously, how do you do that? You do that through a prayer. So I'm going to close in a prayer. And I'm going to invite you to bow your heads. But if you've never told Jesus that you believe in him, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that today. And to just pray silently where you are in this room or online. And come into the knowledge, the saving knowledge of faith in Jesus. So if you would, bow your heads. Let's pray. God, we thank you for sending Jesus. 
Lord, we thank you for Zachariah's song that we understand points us to the salvation of all humankind through faith in Jesus. And Father, we recognize that each one of us has to individually come to you and say, we believe in you and we accept your forgiveness for our sins. And so, if you've never done that, I want to invite you today to say a prayer, just silently where you are, back to God. I'll give you the phrases a few at a time, and you can, you can put them in your own words. So here we go. Here's the first phrase. Dear God, I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus died to pay for my sins. And I believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. And now today, I want to follow him for the rest of my life. We say amen. So if you've prayed that prayer today, I would love to encourage you. I'd love to send you some free material to help you grow in that commitment and in your faith and in your following of Jesus. So you can send us an email at connect at valleybrook.cc. Or if you're here in the room, you can fill out one of the connection cards in the seat in front of you and just put your email on it and I'll send that to you. We would love to do that so you can grow in your faith relationship with God. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.